I'm always so happy to be here on uh, Baptism Sundays. Um, such a reminder uh, of why we do what we do and such a beautiful expression of faith. So we are extremely grateful for Sharice and everybody here to witness this for her, her family. We are so grateful for you guys uh, to be here. Uh, every summer, uh, I go to a family reunion in Virginia, and it's a pretty legit family reunion. Uh, we got relatives with jerry curls, right? Uh, we got people playing spades, talking junk, uh, good food, matching t-shirts, the whole nine, so you know it's an official, uh, an official thing. Uh, and the Sunday after the family reunion, we all go to the church um, that my grandmother grew up in. And it's one of those churches kind of in the backwoods of the country and guaranteed three-hour services, like minimum three hours, and that's on a good day. And I think what takes so long in the services is that, uh, one, they have like 19 songs. That's the first thing. The second thing is they have testimonies, and y'all don't know nothing about a good testimony service. And they pass the microphone around, and everybody speaks about what God has done in their life. Now, every year, uh, the pastor would ask his parents to stand up to give their story, to give their testimony, and he would ask, how long have y'all been married? One year, they got up and said, we've been married for 70 years. Seven zero. That's absolutely incredible. They were in their 90s, and they looked absolutely amazing. And while I was sitting in church listening to them say uh, they've been married 70 years, I remember thinking, man, as soon as service is done, I'm just going to go up to them and ask them about marriage. Um, so my wife and I went up to them after the service, and we said, listen, what's the secret sauce, right? You've been married for 70 joints. I mean, you got to know something. If there's anybody that knows something good about marriage to say, it's them. They were happy. They had so much joy in their lives. Uh, they talked to each other. They were nice to each other. After 70 years, being nice to somebody, that's an amazing feat in and of itself. Uh, so I went up to them. I said, hey, what is some advice you would give me? And they said something that I'll never forget. He said, pick your battles. Choose your battles. Not everything is, is worth a fight. And to be quite honest, I've taken that advice to heart um, because I figured if there's anybody that can speak about marriage, it's the couple that has been married for 70 years, and I've used that even in my own life. Now, for the next number of weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at a book in the Bible called Philippians. Um, and Philippians has a theme that runs through it the entire way, uh, and the theme is called joy. What joy is, how do you get it, how do you maintain it, how do you cultivate it? Uh, and it's a really interesting thing that this book about joy was written in prison, we have a guy named Paul who's coming to you, and he's going to give us so much advice, so many nuggets on joy, and he's writing it from prison. And here's what I think. If there's anybody who knows how to get real joy, it's the dude that's sitting in prison. Uh, it's not uh, somebody whose life is fantastic at the moment, but uh, Paul, sitting in his prison cell, writing this letter to the Philippian church, if there's anybody that has a good handle on what joy is, how to get it, how to maintain it, it would be the guy that's uh, in prison, and it would make a lot of sense that for us, just to take his words to heart, even if you don't fully understand it, uh, even if you don't feel like it makes total sense to you, uh, it would make a whole lot of sense for us to take his words to heart. Now, a lot of people define joy based on what happens to you, and I, and I think that's an insufficient definition of what joy is. Joy isn't what happens to you. I think when Scripture talks about joy, it talks about what flows from you. Right? It's not just simply what's happening to you, but what is flowing from you? What is the well that is inside of you that is uh, flowing up? Now, 
When Scripture mentions joy, it also talks about something much bigger than happiness. Uh, happiness is good and it's great, but happiness comes and goes and sometimes comes back again. Quick example, uh, any of you ever been running late for something? You're running late for work, running late for a meeting, and you run downstairs and you're angry, you're upset, you're nervous about being late for this meeting or being late for work, and then you see out of the corner of your eye the express, the express train pulling up. And you're like, yes, I can still make it. And you run downstairs, you're starting to get a little happy. And then, as soon as you get in front of the doors, they close right in front of your face. Then, the doors miraculously open up again. <laughs> and you just slide on in to your destiny to be on time. Now, in a 10-second window, you could have gone from happy to sad to happy again. And when Scripture talks about joy, it's not talking about you being happy. Uh, it's talking about something much bigger and much better than that. Uh, I would define joy as a, a settled state of confidence and hope. That joy is much bigger than happiness. It includes happiness, but it's more of a settled state within your heart of confidence and hope. Now, here's what's so amazing about Paul writing on confidence and hope. Uh, and this thing called joy in this book of Philippians, that Paul uh, was sitting in a pretty difficult situation. Um, sitting in prison in the first century was not like prisons today, not like prisons today are any good, but this was well before there were human rights. So basically, prisons were literally dungeons, and you would be taken all the way down, and it was super, super um, just difficult to breathe because there was no ventilation. You were just kind of locked down doors. There was no air conditioning. Um, and it was a pretty just debilitating place to be in. Uh, not only was it no good air circulation, but it was just dark all the time. And you guys know what it feels like in the wintertime to not have the sunlight and just how depressed you get. Uh, your body needs to see the sunlight. Uh, basically, you can start to just even lose sleep once you don't see the sunlight because you don't even know when you should be awake and when you should be sleeping. We rely on the sun to tell us that. Uh, and not having the sunlight is uh, one of the things that causes actual depression and to top it off, uh, they would be chained, uh, sometimes from their hands, sometimes by their legs, sometimes around their necks. So 24-7, they're walking around with these big, clanky chains, and they can't sleep because all they hear uh, is the rustling of chains nonstop. And to top it off, on, on top of that, um, it was a, a real struggle. They would play Justin Bieber songs back to back to back, <laughs> nonstop, on repeat, to really make sure it was torturous. Now, some people say that Paul was so desperate that when he was in this prison, uh, his life was so difficult and his circumstances were so terrible and he was so weighed down by what was going on in his life that he actually contemplated suicide. There's a theologian by the name of Elsa Tamez. Uh, she's born in Mexico, and I, and I heard her give a lecture on the book of Philippians, and what she said uh, to me really resonated. Uh, she was basically saying that in order for us to really get the depth of Paul's struggle, we have to take some of his words uh, pretty serious and what he had to overcome in order to get real joy and why it's so inspiring to us that we would listen so closely to what he has to say. Uh, in Philippians 1, he says this, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I, I do not know. Now, Dr. Tamez brought up a great point. She said, why would Paul be saying, I don't know which one I was going to choose? If you're chained in a prison, if you have no access to do anything else, then what, what is there to choose? Now, a lot of historians will tell you that during those times, suicide was a very, very common thing that people did in prisons. 
and that while Paul was sitting in prison, the thought of, his life was so bad that the thought of suicide crossed his mind. And this is the guy that is writing to you about how you can actually have joy, what he had to overcome in order to find real joy. And later in verse 25, he says this, uh, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. This is the thing that Paul had to overcome. And this is a guy that's writing to us about joy. Now, and I think if there's anybody on the planet that would deserve our attention for this series, anybody that can speak authoritatively on joy, whether or not you agree with how to get it from him, that we should just, you know, follow his words, even if it doesn't make total sense uh, to us. Now, two quick things about joy uh, before we dig into the meat of where we're going today. Uh, joy does not dismiss or ignore your current realities. To have joy, what, what the scripture is talking about, to have real biblical joy, it doesn't dismiss your current realities. It doesn't dismiss your current hardships. It doesn't dismiss the pain of the real things that are going on uh, in your life. It doesn't call you to pretend that what's going on is not happening. Uh, you can be in a whole lot of pain and still have joy. It's not one or, or the other. Uh, they can coexist. You can be in a difficult, painful situation and still have this settled confidence and hope. Now, one of the most amazing things that I've found in doing the research on what joy is, uh, a lot of times people think that the opposite of joy is what? Sadness. And that's not the opposite of joy. The opposite of joy is not sadness, it's hopelessness. It's feeling like it is what it is. Now, I don't know everybody in here personally, but I do know that there's a large number of people that probably right now, you came into this room today, and there are several situations in your life where you've just learned to say, it is what it is. You don't even pray about it anymore. Uh, it doesn't even affect you anymore. You've buried it so far out of your consciousness that it doesn't even bother you anymore. Uh, and you think that's progress, but in actual, actuality, that's just hopelessness. You've already given up on that situation. You've given up on what God can do in, in your life. Um, and I think what the Bible calls us to, this confidence and this hope, is much bigger than being happy. It's much bigger than just not having sad situations in our life, but rather that joy and pain could live together in our lives. And the thing that Scripture is pushing us away from is not sadness. That's a healthy emotion. What is pushing us away from is hopelessness. Now, in John 16 and 21, Jesus talks about this relationship between joy and sadness in a way better than anyone else can. So I'll just read Jesus' words. He says, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now, this, is, this experience is something that I only know secondhand. So mothers who've given birth, please do not beat me up in the hallway after this. I am not saying that I understand what it feels like to give birth. If the world de depended on men to give birth, this would be the last generation of people. <laughs> uh, um, so I noticed this actually when my wife was giving birth to, to our son. Uh, we were going to the hospital. She was looking crazy. She was looking in a whole lot of pain. And we had one rule when she was giving birth. She was just like, Jordan, just don't talk. Just, just don't talk. And that's really hard for me. I was like, I had nervous shakes. Uh, they put me on medicine in the hospital to cope for uh, that, that lack. But she was in so much pain and so, she was just hurting so bad in so much anguish uh, that she really couldn't tolerate anything, nothing else. But once the baby came, uh, she actually was nice to me again. I was able to talk again. It was a, it was a good time. Um, 
Now, her body was still in pain for several days and weeks after, but there was a joy of seeing this child that overlapped and overshadowed the pain. The pain was still there, the pain was still real, but the joy of seeing your child now overlaps this pain, and this is what Jesus is talking about. The pain isn't over just because a child is born again, uh, born, uh, but the child is out there, and suddenly the pain is not the same. The pain is transformed. Now, what joy does, it doesn't eliminate pain, but it transforms pain uh, and overwhelms it. And you and I can have this settled confidence. We can have this joy in our lives that overlaps and it runs consistently alongside with pain. And not that every situation in our life will be fixed up, but that you and I would be able to have this joy, this buoyancy that overcomes uh, the pain in our life. Now, secondly, and this is where we're going today, that you and I can actually cultivate this joy in our lives. You can have this, and this is why it's so important for me to get it, and this, this may or may not resonate with you. I don't want to have a circumstantial faith, and I see this happening in myself sometimes. When things are great, praise the Lord. God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. But when things are difficult and uh, things are not lining up the way that I think they are, I start to lose hope. I start to lose trust that God is good, that God is with me, and I don't want that to happen in my life, and I certainly don't want that to happen in your life. And I think we would do well if we leaned into what Paul is saying in Scripture on how you and I can actually accomplish uh, getting real joy in our lives. Now, one of the ways that biblical joy is developed in our lives, one of the ways that Paul is going to lead us, this guy who's in prison telling us about joy, one of the things that he's going to suggest to you, one of the really practical things is this thing called Thanksgiving. Not the holiday with uh, the turkey and stuffing and anything like that, uh, but this the act of giving thanks. This intentional rhythm that you do intentionally every single day when you wake up in the afternoon or the evening, whenever you decide to do it, that a part of your life is thanksgiving. That you pause to make sure that this thing is inside of your life. Uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says it like this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is uh, God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, a lot of times, in, you know, I've, I've heard this prayer request a lot of times, man, I'm just struggling to figure out what God's will is for me. Like, should I move here? Should I take this job? Should I do this? Should I do that? And a lot of times, uh, we really do struggle to know what God's will is. But here, we see God's will very, very clearly. You want to know what God's will is for your life today? Give thanks in all circumstances. What is God's will for you today? What, is, what does God desire that you do? God desires that you learn how to give thanks in all circumstances. Now, it should be pointed out that the scripture does not say, give thanks for all things. Uh, there's some things that you should not be thankful for. You should not be thankful for cancer. You should not be thankful for inequality and violence. You should not be thankful for Tom Brady. There are some things in this life... <laughs> that you should not give thanks for. But we should give thanks in all things, and here's why we should do it, and this is where we're going today. That lasting joy in your life, real lasting joy, real lasting confidence in the character of God, real lasting hope is found as a product of constant gratitude. Lasting joy in your life will be developed by you learning to, give, to live in constant gratitude by us learning this discipline of practicing thanksgiving consistently. And this is uh, why Paul starts his letter in Philippians this way. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. 
In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So from a prison cell, unsure if he'll be executed, um, deprived of almost every single comfort, he starts his letter with thanksgiving. I want us to get that. Sitting in a prison cell, deprived of every single conceivable comfort, no Netflix, he starts off with thanksgiving. Now, I think he starts off with thanksgiving because he knows that lasting joy is a product of constant thanksgiving. And sometimes uh, you don't want to give thanks. And I would say that the times when it's most difficult to give thanks are the times when you need it the most. The times when it's most difficult to be thankful for, to God for anything are the times that you, uh, you need it the most. And before we get into a lot of this stuff, uh, there are some times when life is, is so hard that giving thanks is an impossibility, and I don't want to be dismissive to people who are living in a literal uh, nightmare right now. Uh, sometimes um, the best thing you can do is grieve, and if you are living in the middle of a living nightmare, uh, listen, you get a pass for today. Uh, a lot of you guys know this. Some of you don't. Uh, my wife and I are both widowed. She lost her late husband about three months after they got married in a motorcycle accident. I lost my late wife about a year and a half after we got married due to cancer. Um, and if you were to go up to her and say, the day that her husband died, and say, now, Jessica, uh, the Bible says it's God's will for you to give thanks in all circumstances. I just learned this today in, in church. Uh, let's think about a little bit of Thanksgiving, huh? How does that sound? Let's, let's give God some praise for, for, for that. Or if somebody would have come up to me the day after uh, I watched my wife die and said, hey, let's just think about the goodness of God, right? And all that he's done for you, Right? Now, that would be the absolute worst thing that you can do, and I don't want anybody in here who's, who's struggling with something that's recent and heavy to feel like uh, there is a, another weight added to your shoulder to be thankful uh, right now. Ecclesiastes in 3 tells us there's a time for everything. There's a time to grieve, and there's a time to mourn. There's a time for laughter, and there's certainly times for thanksgiving, but there is a time to grieve, and there is a time to mourn. And if you right now are in a crazy crossroads where life has handed you some really, really difficult stuff, you need to cry, you need to go to counseling, you need to grieve, you need to talk to people, you need to let it all out, but today you get a pass. For most of us, life is not that hard right now, or it might be uncomfortable, but it's not that acute where you get that, uh, that pass uh, and I would still say to all of us in here that when it's hard or hardest to be thankful, that's probably when you and I need it the most. Now, there's an, another list of other things that make um, being thankful so difficult. Um, one of them uh, is that we are constantly dealing with disappointment and unmet expectations in our lives. Uh, I don't like to be around the type of Christians that act like they're never disappointed with anything. Like, life is just so great. They're just totally gravy with everything. I don't think you see that anywhere in Scripture where people have always agreed and always been per perfectly happy with everything that was going on in their lives. I think you see the opposite. I, I think you see that men and women who have followed Jesus have struggled to find contentment, have struggled to find faith, have struggled to believe, have struggled to move forward, have struggled to be thankful. And a lot of us are dealing with unmet expectations and things that have disappointed us. And when you're looking at the things that disappoint you and the unmet expectations that you have, it's pretty hard to be thankful. A lot of times, we're just disappointed with people in our lives, right? You thought that this person was supposed to do this, and they didn't. This family member was supposed to be here for you in this way, and they weren't, and people disappoint us all the time. 
And if it's not people, it's certainly our plans. That by this age, you planned to have this much in your bank account. With a, like this many zeros with a number in front of it, right? You wanted to be able to, to live or to travel to certain places, and it may not have happened. Or you wanted to be married by this point. You wanted to have 2.5 kids by, by, by this time, and for one reason or a number of reasons, it hasn't happened yet. And when you're in a situation where you're looking at disappointment and unmet expectations right in your face, it's really difficult to be grateful. But I think that's why Paul says in Scripture in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Uh, I think what he's talking about that is that uh, you and I will face moments in life where it is very, very difficult to be thankful. But it doesn't mean that you and I shouldn't be thankful because when it's the most difficult, that's probably when you and I need it the most. Now, if it's not based on um, uh, the disappointment in our plans, uh, a lot of times I think we also miss what God is trying to do in our lives. Now, this one is for the Christians in the room. Um, the only promises that God has ever given you, um, God has never promised you um, to walk the entirety of your life on the yellow brick road. That is not a promise anywhere in Scripture. God has promised, however, to make you more like Jesus. He has promised that he would never leave you and he would never forsake you. And God could be keeping his word on his promises and you and I could be missing out because we don't necessarily have an eternal view of what God is doing. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 4 and 17, it says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, I think one of the ways that you and I can develop and be grateful is to understand the viewpoint uh, that Scripture is presenting to us, that there are things in your life right now, you think they're wasteful, you think they make no sense, you think they're unnecessary, and God is saying, no, they are, they are completely necessary. Because these light and momentary afflictions in your life that you are experiencing that are real, they are achieving something for you right now. They are the seed that you can bury down into the soil, and out of that growth, out of that ground, will come real joy. It's almost impossible to develop real joy when everything is gravy. Right? When everything is fantastic, when all of your prayers are answered and life is fantastic, uh, I don't know that you can cultivate real joy in those moments. Certainly, you want to be grateful. You don't want to be uh, ungrateful for good things that God has done in your life. But that's not where real joy is actually cultivated. Real joy is learned in the moments where you don't want to be thankful. Real joy is learned and cultivated in the times where you realize that these are some light and momentary afflictions that God, my Father, my good father is allowing inside of me because they are producing a glory inside of me. Now, not only uh, is it because we're disappointed in life that makes it dif difficult, I think one of the biggest reasons that we find it difficult to be thankful is because we compare ourselves to other people. Now, some of us, uh, if we didn't look around to what other people had, we would be very thankful with the life that we have right now. But a lot of times... We compare ourselves, and comparison is a thief. Comparison steals joy. It steals our ability to be thankful. Uh, and sometimes uh, it's, not that we don't, it's not that we don't have anything to be thankful for, but the comparison is stealing our thankfulness. Let me break it down like this. I've used this example before. Let's just say you're online, you're on Facebook, and you see an ad for an apartment that's only $25,000, two-bedroom, brand-new building, uh, low maintenance, uh, the bank will get, you know, that building will give you a loan at a low mortgage and a low interest rate. It's so easy for you to afford. It would be crazy if you won. There's millions of applicants. 
You put your name in a lottery, not expecting too much to happen, and then all of a sudden, a couple weeks later, you're scrolling through your email, and you see that you won. Now, all you got to do is go to the office the next day and pick up the keys, sign a couple papers. You're going to move into a brand new apartment right above the perfect train line, not the C. Not the C is trash. <laughs> right above the 2-3. It's, it's so affordable. You've been telling everybody about it, uh, and you, this is the happiest day of your life. You get to the office, you're nice to people, offering people coffee, I mean, you're just smiling, their hands folded, and you're sitting next to somebody else, and they're saying, oh man, this is a great day, right? And you're like, yep, fantastic day, I just got a two-bedroom for $25,000 right in this building, and like, oh, that's amazing, I just got a four-bedroom apartment in the same building, I got a balcony, outdoor space, that's pretty amazing, actually. In that moment, knowing that you could have had a four-bedroom and all you got is a two-bedroom, it would immediately decrease your gratitude. Because now you're not going to be thinking about what you have, you're going to be thinking about what you don't have in relation to other people. And if you take them out of the equation, you would have been the happiest, most thankful person on the planet. But because what you don't have is not enough or not as much of what someone else has, it is absolutely robbing you of your ability to be thankful. Comparison is a thief. It will steal your joy, it will steal your thankfulness, it will steal your gratitude, it will take you, it take your eyes off of the good things that God is doing in your life, and it'll start to make you feel like God is unfair. God is unfair, or God doesn't like you, or God prefers other people over you, or that God doesn't like you for whatever reason because he didn't give you what he gave so-and-so. And in those, in those moments, we need to realize that under, underneath our lack of thankfulness is oftentimes a bad, a really bad understanding of, of who God is and um, some real bad theology about what God is, that God is not wise or God is not faithful or that God is not good or that God uh, can't be trusted with our lives because he's given other people better stuff than he gives us. And I also think it takes our eyes way off the cross uh, because we start to say, well, God, you know, if the cross is a brand new Bugatti, we're saying, God, you know, you gave this other person a Datsun, a 1995 Datsun, and well, I, wanted, I wanted the green one. And we're like little kids bickering over who gets to wear the hat, uh, where God has given us everything in Christ. And he asks the question, if God did not spare his own son for us, will he not, along with him, also graciously give us all things? In comparison, it takes our eyes off of the cross, and it takes our eyes onto what we don't have, and it steals our ability to be thankful now, the last thing that I think makes being thankful really, really difficult is that you and I are addicted to complaining, literally. Uh, we complain uh, in response to our reality, and it's amazing how programmed we are to, to complain. Uh, we think that it's normal and good. Now, venting is good. Venting is healthy. You've got to get some pent-up stuff out of you. I'm not saying lock it all down and, you know, be uh, emotionally deprived, um, but it's really easy for venting to turn into just full-out, unhealthy complaining, and it's addictive. Complaining is as addictive as a hot Krispy Kreme donut. The more you do it, the more you want. The more you have it, the more you want. The more you need, the more you crave. Um, the science behind it is actually really fascinating. Uh, I, don't, I got D's in biology, so I'll do my best to explain this. Um, throughout your brain, there's this collection of synapses or these receptors. So there's like these things in your brain that are shooting signals one to another. And every time you have a thought, one signal is sent from here to there. 
Every time something happens in your body, signals are being sent all over your body. When you stub your toe, there's a signal that goes from your toe to your brain, back down, letting you know that you did something that hurts. And this happens in nanoseconds, uh, these synapses that are repeatedly firing. And here's what happens. Every time you have a thought, the more and more you have a certain type of thought, in your brain, th these synapses, these receptors, are growing closer and closer because they want to make it easy for you to have these thoughts. It takes less energy. If you're always going to do this one thing, your brain starts to build brick by brick by brick a bridge between these two thoughts so that having these thoughts comes more easily. So the more you complain, the more bricks are being added to the bridge in your brain, that your brain is actually being hardwired to complain more easily than someone who doesn't complain. Every time we have a thought, every time we have any thought, positive or negative, our brain is being hardwired and rewired. Now, I think that's why Paul says in uh, Philippians 2, 14 to 15, he says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Because the same thing is true and the opposite uh, even if you feel like you being a thankful person and all the stuff that Paul is talking about, all the stuff Jordan talking about, uh, this is an impossibility for my life. Uh, the more your brain, uh, the more you force yourself and intentionally practice thanksgiving, the more your brain will start to build this bridge of thankfulness. The more you do it, the easier it becomes. And step by step, brick by brick, your brain will become hardwired to see things in a more thankful manner. Now, this is the reason that two people can go to a buffet, one person comes back complaining that, that the hash browns aren't hot enough. The other person comes back saying, wow, there was like 30 options of stuff I could have eaten. That's so great. I'm going to go back for seconds, you know. The only thing that changed, it wasn't the food, it was that one person has a more likely bridges built in his or her brain that they see the world through a more thankful lens. And the way we get this is by simply disciplining ourselves to practice this thing called Thanksgiving. Now, the Grand Canyon wasn't, didn't happen overnight, but uh, every morsel, or every grain of sand was gradually eroded by the Colorado River. Over millions of years, this massive canyon was formed, was, uh, was run through not by one big explosion, but just through repeated use of water going through it. Now, if you were to wash your brain with the water of God's word and wash your brain with thankfulness, slowly but surely, slowly but surely, a canal is going to be dug in your brain, this beautiful thing called the Grand Canyon of Joy. And you're going to see it develop in your life. And it's not going to happen overnight. Don't send me an email tomorrow saying, hey, I tried Thanksgiving in the morning, lunch I was still mad, this whole thing doesn't work. Don't do that. But what some of you guys absolutely need to do is to go to your trusted loved ones and say, hey, listen, for this next week, for this next month, every time I complain, stop me in my tracks. Now, this does not work in the opposite. You can't just start doing it to somebody else <laughs> without them asking you to do it. Hey, you know what you should stop doing? You should stop complaining. That's not going to go over well at all. You should go to people that you love and that trust and are close to and say, listen, Man, I feel like I've been complaining too much in life, and I, and I really do feel like it comes super easy for me to complain. And the more I do it, the more I want to do it. And it's this really weird thing that's going on in my life. I need help. Can you call me out when you see me, being, uh, when you see me complaining? And then replace that complaining with gratitude. 
Replace that complaining with, with being thankful uh, in your life. What are the things that you do have to be thankful for? And to really think about that. I'm not talking about, it might take you some time to sit down and to really be quiet and still and to really think through uh, why you're thankful because it actually does work. There's this thing called community temperature reading that uh, people advise you to do. And basically, it's a way that you can uh, interact with people that are close to you and it starts off with just gratitude. Like, why are you grateful to this person in your life? My wife and I do it. Uh, and after that, it gets into requests of like, hey, I didn't like when you did that. I'd prefer if you did this. Or things that, you know, you would like to see correction on in, 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 your, in her life. Now, they start off with gratitude because by starting with gratitude, it actually softens your annoyances. When I'm annoyed at my wife for one reason or another, uh, when I'm annoyed at her because we were late to some place and I would like to be on time, she's Caribbean, so I'm not even going to talk about Caribbean people time. Um, no offense, <laughs> Dylan and other Caribbean people them in the room. Um, but when I start with gratitude and I say, Jess, you know what? Hey, I'm really, really grateful for X, Y, and Z. I'm grateful that you, know, you did that yesterday. I'm grateful that you, know, we, you gave up Thanksgiving we're your people to do Thanksgiving with my family. Again, you didn't have to do that. You've done that over and over and over again. I'm really grateful that I got to spend this whole day and you were there, you were a champ. Now, when I've started with gratitude, when I get to the things that annoy me, they don't annoy me as much. A lot of times, we think that life is hopeless and we have no, nothing good to look forward to, but there are good things that we have to look forward to. We just haven't put those to the forefront of our brain, and you and I would do very well to learn what it feels like to intentionally force ourselves to be thankful. Now, how do you do it? Uh, one of the things, one of the ways we do it in Renaissance is this handy-dandy thing called community Bible reading, uh, CBR for all the cool kids, um, and this basically takes you through a chapter of Scripture a day, and in that chapter, you're praying and you're thinking about who is God? First question, who is God? What do I see God is like in the scripture? And one of the best ways I've found to undo the lies of the enemy or the lies that we tell ourselves is to rehearse the truth that we see in scripture. It starts off with adoration, who God is in scripture. And after that, it goes to confession. How are we not living up to who God is or what's going on in our life that we need to confess about? And then it goes to thanksgiving. It doesn't stop at confession. It doesn't stop with you talking about how bad you are. It, stopped, it goes to Thanksgiving, and there's a box for you to think through, to be intentional about why you should be thankful to God in your life, why you should be thankful for whatever's going on in your life. And simply doing this act, simply having to think about why you should be thankful is a really powerful thing. We should have a couple of these outside if you want to get one uh, after service. And even if you don't want to do the CBR, you don't have to, uh, but just commit to this next week. Every day, I'm going to write down five things that I'm thankful for. Five things. Before I go into work that I hate my job and I'm so mad about it, uh, list five things that you really appreciate about your job. Just list them. List them out. Five things that you really appreciate about your job. When you pray, God, I don't have anything to be thankful for, think about, God, what are two or three things that I should be really, really thankful for? Now, the other day, I was uh, reading my CBR a couple months ago, and I was going through uh, just what I've been writing in my, in my thankfulness boxes over these last couple of months. And it was one from Luke 12 um, that I read. I was having a, a tough day where I was, a, a bunch of stuff was going on in my family and some other stuff. And it was just a rough day. And I read Luke 12, 24. It says, consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap. 
They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Now, when I read that scripture and I sat down to do my Thanksgiving piece, uh, I had to think about reasons why, despite my disappointments, despite my fears that God wasn't with me, why I could be thankful. And I stopped and I was thankful that, God, I'm valuable to you. I'm valuable. And that is an amazing, amazing thing in and of itself. If I don't get anything else out of this day, if I don't get anything else out of this week, then to know that you value me greatly is uh, an amazing thing for me. And that's something to give thanks that in some ways propels me to have joy. That even though the situations didn't really work themselves out that day or that week, that I was able to have something to be thankful for. But more importantly than anything other than that, I I do think anyone in here who's a Christian, uh, we have to continually redirect our minds back to the gospel Uh, what we really have to be thankful for, and what can give us a good reminder that can give us thankfulness in any situation. Uh, I want to leave us with these words from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so you may proclaim the praises of the one who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, if you can't understand God's methods, above all, we need to understand God's heart. And in and of itself, that is cause for thankfulness, and that thankfulness will lead us to a deep well of joy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, the gospel reminds us that you loved us so much so that you sent your son Jesus to the cross for us in our place, that what we deserved, Jesus got, and what Jesus Uh, got we deserved father as the service continues as this week goes on i pray that we would see glimpses of the gospel that would overshadow our uh, our troubles our tribulations and we would be uh, aware of our need for thanksgiving and we would find it in you we'd find it in the gospel we'd find it in your hope lord i pray for the people who are experiencing ridiculous amounts of pain right now i pray that they'd be able to grieve well um But God, for the rest of us, I pray that you would uh, help us to be thankful, that you would lead us away from all of the negativity that we're building in our own brains, that we would be thankful to you. And God, that we would be people who are joyful, full of confidence, full of hope. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.